Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientist, with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. This time we chat to the new head of the UK Space Agency and we're joined by NASA astronaut Jessica Meir, who made history with the all-women's spacewalk from the ISS and is now one of the Artemis crew and could become the first woman on the moon, something that's been a dream of hers for quite a while. I think my first distinct memory was in the first grade, And we were asked what we wanted to be when we grew up and to draw a picture of it by our first grade teacher. And so then I distinctly remember drawing an astronaut standing on the surface of the moon in a spacesuit next to the American flag, that kind of iconic Apollo image. And I never stopped saying it since. Let's begin with the upcoming launch of one of the most extraordinary telescopes ever built, the James Webb Space Telescope. It's got a sun shield the size of a tennis court and a distinctive primary mirror six and a half metres across, made up of 18 smaller hexagonal gold-coated mirrors. It'll be the largest astronomical mirror ever sent into space. Well, the telescope's currently at the European spaceport in Kourou, French Guiana, waiting to be launched on an Ariane 5. And we are delighted to have with us ESA Senior Science Advisor Mark McCochran, who you know, you've been working on the James Webb Space Telescope since its inception in the, in the 1990s, Mark. <laughs> is, that, is that really the case? Actually, it goes back further than that, Richard. Before even the Hubble Space Telescope was launched in 1990, the first mention or the first ideas about a next generation space telescope, as it was known for a long time, came in 1989. There was a conference at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and that's where that project began. I only joined it nine years later, uh, but that was in 1998. So yeah, I've been involved in the project for 23 years already. So conceived 32 years ago, you've been involved in it 23 years. Why is it taking so long? Is it just because it's so complicated? Yeah, I think you have to step back a bit and ask what it is that we said we wanted to build. Uh, I mean, I mean, by we, of course, uh, this started as a US project, but the European Space Agency joined in pretty early and the Canadian Space Agency as well. So what is it that astronomy wanted to build? And what motivated building such a complicated machine? Sort of the first point is that we know that the universe is expanding. And as we look towards more and more distant galaxies, they're further and further away from us. And because of that expansion, they're actually redshifted uh, more and more as you look further back. And it's not only looking further away in distance, but of course, further back in time. So as we look towards the very first galaxies that formed in the universe, their light has all been redshifted out of the optical into the infrared. So that's the first reason we wanted an infrared telescope. Second reason is we want to look at cool objects, things like planets forming around uh, stars, 
looking in places where things haven't quite collapsed down to start nuclear fusion and so there's not a lot of heat and light but we want to see the early phases so that light's coming out in the infrared also turns out those regions are typically obscured by dust and gas out of which those objects are forming and in, in the visible light doesn't get out through the dust but in the infrared it does so all in all we need a big infrared telescope uh, we need it in space to get the sharpest images possible. And also, there's the trick, one of the trickiest things about James Webb Space Telescope is that in order that that telescope doesn't glow at the same wavelengths you're trying to study the universe, so drowning out those faint signals, you need a very cold telescope. And that's not true of Hubble. Hubble's at room temperature, effectively. But James Webb Space Telescope, we need to be at minus 230 degrees Celsius. So it's an incredibly complicated machine from the get-go. And by um, redshifted, this is similar to the equivalent of a Doppler shift, is it in terms of uh, something that's moving away or, or, or moving towards you, but in this case, it's galaxies moving away? As an analogy, that's, that's good. But of course, the universe, you know, the galaxies aren't moving through space as such. So they're, they're not moving objects like an ambulance moving towards you or going away. The galaxies are not moving through space. The space time itself is expanding. But effectively, yes, it, it yields that effect. And there are some galaxies which are blue shifted coming towards us in our local universe. But the great majority, as you go to further and further distances, are all streaming away from us or they look like that as the universe expands. Now, Europe's put quite a, a lot of time, energy, money into this telescope. What would you say were the main instruments for, from the European point of view? Well, there's three main components that Europe has been involved in, and one of that is instrumentation. So James Webb Space Telescope has four scientific instruments on the backside behind the, this big six-and-a-half-metre mirror. And one of those is a near-infrared camera, and that's coming from the US. And that's a very interesting instrument because it's not only taking pictures of the universe, but it's the one that will actually allow us to align all those 18 mirrors in the first place. So that's critical to the mission. And then there's a near-infrared spectrograph called NearSpec, and that's been provided by Europe. And that splits the light up for these very distant galaxies and anything else you want to look at, so exoplanets or young protoplanets going around stars in our Milky Way. That splits the light up and allows you to do, if you like, a chemical analysis. That's coming from Europe. And then there's a mid-infrared instrument, so longer wavelengths than those first two, uh, extending out to sort of between 5 and nearly 30 micrometers, microns, as we say. That's half coming from Europe, the actual instrument itself, and then the detectors and the cooler, which get that instrument super cold, just down to 7 degrees above absolute zero. That's coming from the US. And then there's a Canadian instrument, which is a slitless spectrograph. So you can actually look at galaxies in spectral form, like Neospec, but different, working in a different way. And that's also critical because that another side of that instrument is what's called the fine guidance sensor, which allows the telescope to lock onto objects and very, make very sharp images. So Europe's effectively providing sort of one and a half to two of the instruments out of the four. Then obviously we're providing the launcher, which is a very visible thing, uh, will be on the 18th of December. But the other thing which is probably less visible to most people is that we'll have 15 people, we do have 15 people, co-located at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, running the science operations, uh, joining with the team that NASA and Canada has, but also 
making sure dedicated in a sense to the European instruments, making sure that they provide the best science possible for everybody, not just for Europe, of course, but for everybody. That's brilliant. I'm, I mean, I know having been to Edinburgh quite a few times about the Miri being built and was actually completed way ahead of time. <laughs> it's sort of, it was like an instrument waiting for a, a telescope and a ride uh, for quite a while. I do wonder though, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to put this, but do you think the American public know that Europe are involved? Well, we shall see. Um, we've obviously got a very good opportunity on uh, the 18th of December to show that, you know, Europe is a big part of this project because it's being launched from our spaceport in French Guiana. We are putting a lot of effort into the outreach side. Uh, of course, we're going up against, uh, if, if you like, if it's, I wouldn't call it competition. It's a thing that we often, a word that we use, that actually, I think originates with Catherine Sazarsky, who was the former director general of ESO, the ground-based observatory, European Southern Observatory. She came up with this neologism, co-opetition, <laughs> where we simultaneously compete and cooperate with our partners. Um, so yeah, there's a bit of push and pull. It's a very good question. And it's not obvious how we can do an awful lot more there than just continually get great science out of these instruments and make sure that they're presented in compelling ways not only to the European public, but to the world's public. Um, I think there's, you know, European Space Agency's visibility has increased a lot oh, since, since the beginning of Hubble yeah. in 1990. The flip side is that this is a huge, huge deal for everybody and everybody will be kind of pushing and saying, well, you know, look at what we're doing. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just inevitable. It's, it's, it's how these projects go. One of the most extraordinary things I, I find with this telescope, I mean, you look at Hubble, which filled the, the shuttle bay, and it's big. This is going to be even bigger, but it's got to fit into the top of an Ariane 5. I mean, that's quite big, but the, the way it's all folded up and to get all those instruments protected for launch, the mirrors all folded up and it's then like to unfold bat, in it? space, it's a, you know, <laughs> ext its extraordinary engineering structure. Again, if you think about the motivation, why did we want a bigger telescope? Bigger isn't always the obvious thing to do. You might think a bigger telescope is better just because it collects more light. And indeed, those galaxies out at the edge of the universe, so the very first ones that formed, they're going to be fainter than the ones which are nearer. So we did need a bigger telescope. It's also that the larger the telescope is, the better the resolution, so the sharper the pictures you can take. Now, Conversely, James Webb is operating at longer wavelengths than Hubble. So the resolution will actually be roughly the same as Hubble because it's a bigger telescope by a factor of three roughly, but it's also operating at wavelengths which are roughly three times to four times longer. So no, you shouldn't be expecting images which are sharper than Hubble, but you know that's pretty sharp already. It's about the same size, actually, as the Hubble Space Telescope when it's folded up. So if there was a shuttle, you probably could launch it that way. But the shuttle doesn't go to L2, which is a critical thing. So this point, one and a half million kilometers away from Earth, is very important to us because that allows us to position the telescope, the main mirror and all the instruments behind this giant sun shield, as you pointed out, about the size of a tennis court. Because if we're not hidden behind that sun shield, then the telescope will get warmed up by the sun, but also by the Earth, which isn't that far away. And then we'd never get down to these temperatures where the telescope will stop glowing and stop basically putting this bright background in all of our images. So that's the whole thing. We had to get a, an expendable rocket, the Ariane 5, pack everything up inside it. But what's strange is that this telescope actually weighs only half what Hubble does. Hubble weighs about 12 and a half tons, whereas the James Webb Space Telescope only weighs six and a half tons. 
So it's incredibly lightweighted. The main mirrors are made of beryllium, which is one of the lightest metals you can get. But it's all been made in a honeycomb form so that the mirrors themselves are very, very lightweight, much lighter than Hubble's mirror per square meter, say. So everything in that telescope has been honed to make it very lightweight, which lets us get all the way out there to one and a half million kilometers away and then cool down. Because if you have a lot of mass, then it takes forever to cool down. For the last five years or so, it's felt as if the only stories about the James Webb have been negative ones. They've concentrated on delays. I mean, rightly so in some cases in terms of fears about will it ever get get into space, some, some issues with certain aspects, US side. But I have noticed recently the coverage starting to change and that newspapers reporting it with, dare I say it, some excitement and actually lauding and praising the sort of ingenuity that's gone into it. And although, yes, I hang out in sort of geeky circles, I've also noticed that a lot of young people who love science wearing jewellery like web mirror earrings and um, necklaces and T-shirts. So there's actually a lot of... It is, but there's actually all of a sudden, I feel as though that perception is changing. You recently returned from French Guiana as well. I I don't know, do you feel as though the atmosphere has changed slightly or about it all? Just on the jewellery thing, that's of course why we coated the main mirror gold exactly for that reason but it's no it's not of course it's because it's much more reflective in the infrared than silver would be for example so even though it's not designed for optical wavelengths that's why it has some color but in the infrared it's it's brilliant that that, that gold coating i think you raise a very good point of course you know when when missions get delayed and they often do this james webb might be an example of something that's been delayed a very long time and it has uh, but many missions get delayed it's in part because we're you know if you like we're building the Sistine Chapel every time, uh, but but not the same Sistine Chapel or a cathedral. P- I mean, pick your metaphor. We're building something that's incredibly complicated that's never been done before in order to answer questions which are very challenging in terms of what they require, the, you know, the, the resolution, the wavelengths, the faintness. Uh, and same can be true of the missions we fly in the solar system as well, whether it's going to land on Mars or, or going to Mercury. Many of these things... I'm not saying they're harder than you would believe at the beginning. Everybody puts as much thought as they possibly can into how difficult it will be. But of course, you encounter challenges along the way. Um, and I can assure you that the, you know, sort of 10,000 people who've worked on this project and, and more have not been sitting on their hands, sort of, you know, in a, just waiting for the clock to tick by. It's been a lot of very clever, very dedicated people spending years, most of their career in some cases, making this thing work. And I think you're right. I think that the the fact that this is turning around, I mean, of course, it becomes tangible when you see, as I was lucky enough to do a couple of weeks ago, see the telescope standing in a clean room just a couple of kilometers away from where the rocket will fire it into space. I think this is actually all real now. And getting that story out about, you know, here's the real hardware, and but everything that's involved in getting to that point, you know, why did it take so long? Why is it so hard? I think, you know, people have been putting a great deal of thought and effort into that. And so, you know, combined with the jeopardy aspect, you know, the fact that it's got to unfold, there's all these mechanisms that have to work and to get the sun shield out, to get the mirror out, to get the, you know, all of the cooling to work. It's not a simple fire and forget kind of satellite where once it's in space, it's, you know, it's ready to go. Not at all. The launch, of course, will be tense. But for those of us close to the project, and hopefully many other people, probably the least tense part, because it's the following month as all that deployment works, 
which will have everybody on the edge of their seat. And in a way, that creates a nice drama. I mean, we didn't do it that way to have that be the case. Um, And I'd like to flip it around just briefly. I mean, you have to look back at Hubble. I mean, Hubble has become totally iconic uh, in the public eye as, as as a successful scientific endeavor. And beyond just the science, this this whole idea of it, you know, being on the school schoolroom walls and in textbooks, you know, it's been there for generations of kids going through school. But it had a redemption story as well, right? It was broken when it first launched. Oh, yeah, it was um, considered a disaster. Uh, completely. It? I was living in America at the time. I was working on a second generation Hubble project and we saw it launch. And then you just sit and watch Johnny Carson and all the other talk show hosts just rip into NASA. It was famously in a Naked Gun film. There's a scene where um, Frank Drebin, our hero (laughs) in the Naked Gun, is in this this, uh, bar, sort of misery, drinking. And in the background, there's pictures of the Hindenburg, the Titanic, (laughs) and Hubble on the the back wall. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. What was interesting is it has a human story because, of course, it was launched on a shuttle with astronauts and astronauts went back to repair it. And, Which is not going to happen with the well, no. So, so in, you know, in a way, that that redemption story we hope we don't repeat uh, because, of course, we, we won't be able to go and fix it at, at L two. And also, the other thing which is interesting about Hubble and its iconic status is it's lasted um, thirty one years so far. And JWST is designed for a, a, as long a life as possible, but it probably won't be much more than ten years. Now, there's an interest, and people will say, why is it? Why have you only built it for a short period if Hubble could live for so long? So Hubble has been serviced many times. But there's an interesting little thing. I mean, it's very geeky. But um, when we turn the telescope around in space uh, to point at different objects, the, the telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and Hubble as well, is getting pushed on by the sunlight, which hits it. And that sunlight exerts a pressure on the telescope. And that pressure effectively will cause the satellite to tumble so we counteract that tumbling by using momentum wheels, big flywheels inside that turn. And by loading momentum from the from the, the satellite, which is trying to turn, putting them into the wheels, you can make the telescope static and point at the in space that you want to. But at some point, the wheels are spinning faster and faster and faster. You have to get rid of that spinning. And Hubble does that a very clever way. Hubble is close enough to the Earth. It can use the Earth's magnetic field as the way of offloading that angular momentum. So you turn on electrical current through some magnetic bars and you can, you connect to the earth's magnetic field and you get rid of the angular momentum. It's very cool. So that there's no propellant on, on Hubble for that reason. On JWST, we have to do it with small rockets, small propellant. We basically fire them in the, in the direction to prevent the telescope turning and we can offload the wheels. It's a bit technical, but there's a really finite lifetime to James Webb because unless somebody can go out and refuel it, somebody wants to take that on. <laughs> you talked about Hubble, and what's quite very exciting actually is, is hopefully for a, a good couple of years at least that the, the two telescopes will, will coexist. But we're we're so used to those Hubble images, and you see, you know, movies like Guardians of the Galaxy actually making space brightly coloured as a, as a result of of the images we've had from Hubble. What will we get from, from James Webb? I mean, presumably some sort of artificial colorization, but will we get that that beauty that we're, we're so used to with with the Hubble images? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, actually, it's, it's a very deep question because if you go out into the night sky and, and, and look up, if it's a dark sky, there's no moon, and you look at Orion, for example, you can see the Orion Nebula with a naked eye, but it has no color. It's not bright enough 
in order to be to activate the color sensors in the eye. So you can see it as a, a gray object, but you won't see it as any more than that. And that's fact true of more or less everything in the night sky. But the weird thing is that if you were to get in a spaceship and go closer and closer and closer to the Orion Nebula, it would, on one hand, get brighter because you're closer to it. It would also get bigger. And the light just gets spread out more and more the closer you get to it. So it actually never gets any brighter in your eye. It's the same as walking up to a white wall. The wall doesn't get brighter as you walk towards it. It just it does get brighter, but it also spreads out at the same time and in exactly the same ratio. So every picture that you see from Hubble is something that you would not see with the naked eye if, in terms of the color if you were standing next to it. If you take a long exposure, then the colors come out. But they're often not the colors you would see with the naked eye, even if you were able to amp up your vision, because they're often made from filters which select certain wavelengths, certain emission lines, or wavelengths in the ultraviolet or wavelengths in the infrared that humans can't see. So the colors you often see, this maybe the classic one is the Pillars of Creation, M16, uh, the Eagle Nebula, with that sort of bluey green Sargasso Sea uh, look to it. It doesn't look anything like that to the human eye. It would be red, if anything, because it would be dominated by the hydrogen alpha line. And that was just a, a, you know, it's a way that it was mixed using the filters they had for that image. Now, Webb is in the infrared. So you could argue that anything that it makes in terms of color images the human eye would never see that's true but the flip side is that the same it's not true for hubble either right you're not really seeing things with hubble largely that you would see with the human eye but the good news is that uh, james webb space telescope's instruments its imaging instruments have huge numbers of filters so we'll be able to pick and choose lots and lots of colors and lots of wave uh, wavelengths and therefore colors to mix and make some spectacular pictures with. And we've been doing that from the ground for, for, for decades with near-infrared imaging. I've, this is one of sort of my specialities is making beautiful pictures out of near-infrared images from the ground. And they're equally spectacular as the ones you get from Hubble. So we have lots of wavelengths. We have a bigger field of view where we have a bigger detectors actually than Hubble has. So we'll have a you know larger area on the sky to cover in one shot. Yeah, I don't think don't think anyone should be worried about that. There is one part though that's going to be funky, and that is that Hubble has this very crisp round primary mirror, and that leads to very crisp round images of stars. Effectively, James Webb has eighteen hexagonal segments, and when you figure out how that optically um, makes stars look, so point sources, they're going to have some pretty funky shapes if you look in detail. Most people are aware of diffraction spikes are sort of the cross that you see on stars when you take them with a telescope from the ground, say, or from Hubble. And that's due to the way the, the optics are arranged. We will probably have hexagon, hexagonal crosses, so star shapes around every bright star at least. It's going to be interesting. We've been simulating this, and it doesn't affect the science at all, but it's going to make for some... Uh, an interesting new look on the universe. They won't look like Hubble images, let's put it that way. Can't wait for that. And uh, with 10,000 people being involved, not everyone's going to get to see the launch then. Where will you be viewing the launch? <laughs> Actually, I probably will be seeing it from Baltimore, from the Space Telescope Science Institute. Oh, um, that'd, be, oh that'd be great atmosphere. Yeah, that'd be, the, the thing there is that the launch phase up to 20 minutes, of course, is all under the control of Kourou. But then the, the telescope then passes to Space Telescope where it'll be operated from. Hubble is operated from Goddard's Space Flight Center, um, the mission operations, the science operations are at uh, Space Telescope Institute, Science Institute. But this time, the STSCI has, has responsibility for both. And the first key thing, for example, that's got to happen is the solar array has to come out and uh, start getting some power to the observatory within about 20 minutes of launch. 
because we only have batteries on board. And if they run out, then we lose contact with it. So, the, you know, it's going to be some very critical moments after the first launch phase. The thing about Kuru is that it's a fairly hard place to get to. There's not this huge tourist infrastructure that Cape, uh, Cape Kennedy has, a Kennedy Space Center, for example, with you know Disneyland and everything else around in Florida. And there are lots of people, lots of engineers there with J- James Webb. So the hotels are pretty full. So there's only a very limited number of, you know, let's call them triple VIPs going down. Unfortunately, the scientists didn't count as triple VIP <laughs> no, enough, um, even though we, well, even though we've been in it for 20, yeah. you know, 20 odd years. Uh, um, but, you know, that's a little, politics, bit, of, eh? little bit of politics in yeah. there. But, um, but at least you got to see your, your baby. And I feel like it is your baby in the clean room. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Isn't well, it? I, I, yeah, I think, you know, what is the, what is the phrase? Success has a thousand fathers or 10,000 in this case. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, my baby, along with many, many, <laughs> many other people who've spent a huge amount more time. I mean, I was in, heavily involved in the early phases, getting it um, proposed to ESA and getting it pushed through. And I've been a member of the science working group ever since uh, 2002, um, which, you know, it's a good thing. It, it actually gives me some uh, priority access to the telescope to be doing science with it. Uh, and I've watched the, you know, watched the engineers put it together over the years and just been you know, utterly impressed by the work that's had to be done. But yes, if I'd gone to the launch, then of course, Webb will be in the fairing. Yes. You'd never get to see it. And by going down now, and, and luckily with you know a bunch of media people, that was the idea. It was a pre-launch media trip. So lots of people were able to do lots of interviews and talk to the engineers and in a much lower stress way, if you like, than on launch day. And we went out to the Ariane 5 launch pad, kind of standing where the rocket and the... Um, uh, yeah, the satellite I've, I've will be stood there as well. That's, yeah. a, that's a great experience. It is, yeah. and, and and then the the actual Ariane five had just come in and it was being uh, lifted to the vertical, so we got to see that. And in a way, okay, you, you missed the launch, but uh, but as you know, at launches at Kourou, um, I'm not trying to minimise. Of course, a launch is a hugely impressive experience, but the VIPs who will be in our Jupiter control room building, they'll go out onto the balcony to watch the launch. The rocket's 12 kilometers away at that point. You'll feel the vibrations and the sound. Of course, you'll see the rocket going off. It's at 9.20 in the morning, Kourou time. So it's not a light night launch, but it, you know, it's, it should be certainly spectacular. But yeah, 12 kilometers. Mm, yeah, it's not, it's not quite like Baikonur where, uh, you know, the Soyuz, some of the Soyuz people, there's this one video I've seen of somebody with an iPhone watching a Soyuz launch. And I looked it up afterwards because he's standing next to a building and i say it's a he i can you can only assume it was a he because it's suicidal um <laughs> and uh, I, I said well that building must i must be able to look on a picture from from you know an aerial shot or a space shot and looked and figured out 146 meters away from the <laughs> Yeah, it's like, and the guy's just standing there lifting his phone up and watching this rocket go off oh and thinking, goodness. all right, that's brave. That's brave. I thought it was bad enough with Richard being on a missile silo watching. Uh, oh, yes. Like when it. I went to the, um, yeah. the, the first stage of the International Space Station, it was the first press trip to Baikonur with international media. So I guess it's 1998. And they didn't really know what to do with us. So they stuck us on top of a missile silo <laughs> um, <laughs> in the snow with this proton rocket in the distance uh, and jatted at us in Russian mostly um, yeah saying we promise not to launch the one underneath you yes, yes exactly, yes, exactly. <laughs> well we will think of you when the launch happens and um it'll we'll be watching it as well it, it's been very exciting uh, mark mccochran from european space agency thank you very much for joining us on space boffins and this is space boffins podcast and we're in partnership with the naked scientists
Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Are we on Instagram? We never really got round to sorting that out. <laughs> yes, we, we are on Instagram. It's a very exclusive it's a space one picture. for us. So exclusive, I hardly ever put pictures up. Okay, but we yeah, ought to no, do I, I, I know, yeah, we I ought know. That's yeah. uh, just got a lot yeah, I mean, I've got a tell lot me what to the login do. is. I do quite yeah. like looking at other people's stuff. I, I'll, I'll yeah. get round to okay. it. Okay. Send us a message. You can email us, podcast at spaceboffins.com. Uh, and also, do write a review on your favourite podcast platform it's really difficult to say that podcast platform I'd rather you than me engine turbo pump at flight speed engines at maximum in September 2019 NASA astronaut Jessica Meir left Earth for a six-month stay on the International Space Station during her mission she would conduct the first of three all-women spacewalks. And as a biologist who specialises in the physiology of animals in extreme environments, found herself in the perfect place for investigations into how the human body responded to the extreme environment of space. Jessica was in the UK recently to give a lecture for the Physiological Society. So I caught up with her in London and began by finding out when her ambition to become an astronaut first started. My mother tells me I first started saying I wanted to be an astronaut when I was five years old and I really never stopped saying it since that time and I think my first distinct memory was in the first grade and we were asked what we wanted to be when we grew up and to draw a picture of it by our first grade teacher and so then I distinctly remember drawing an astronaut standing on the surface of the moon in a spacesuit next to the American flag that kind of iconic Apollo image and I never stopped saying it since. Did it live up <laughs> to that lifelong dream? You know, that's an interesting question because it's something that I thought a lot about too. You know, having finally started working at NASA and having some experience there and having thought about it for my entire life and then wondering if it would really be exactly the, the same way that I had anticipated it. And fortunately, I can say that it actually was even more incredible than I ever imagined, which was really, I think, saying a lot for me since it was something that I had thought about for so very long. But I really felt that way, and I said it several times while I was in space, just that feeling of weightlessness and floating all of the time and of that incredible view looking back down to the Earth. It was absolutely more incredible than I could have ever imagined. Now, this takes a a huge amount of training, and your background is in physiology, both with animals and marine animals, and also with Lockheed Martin, looking at human physiology. Did you apply a sort of your scientific background to your own body as you were doing the missions in terms of thinking, oh, well, that's to be expected? Or was it more a sort of, oh, I didn't quite think it would feel like this? Yeah, it's interesting. When we arrive on the space station, you know, we actually describe ourselves a little bit like newborns because even though we have had years and years of very technical, specific training on things that are quite complicated, like our spacesuits and the robotic arm and all of the different systems on the space station, nothing can really prepare you for just living and working in weightlessness all of the time. And so, you know, you're a bit like a newborn. You don't know how to go to the bathroom, how to drink, how to eat, how to do all of these basic functions 
that really just blend into the background when you're here on Earth. And those are the things that are the most challenging to try to figure out and just deal with. You know, you can't just put something down and you are using all of the 3D volumetric space in order to move around for your situational awareness and for your navigation. And so it's really totally different for the brain. And I think for me as a physiologist, I was so interested in this response where, you know, you really could tell um, how you were how you were navigating. Now on Earth, I think I had not really thought about it before, um, but you know, everything that we do in terms of our spatial awareness and our navigation is based on this gravitational vector. You know, we have down because of gravity, and that's why we have right and left, and we know which way to turn when we're trying to find direction somewhere. Now in space, since you don't have that, you might be on the floor, what would be the equivalent of the floor, one minute, and the next minute you might be up on the ceiling. And in those first few weeks, you could actually feel this flip-flop of your brain as it was trying to interpret now the ceiling as the floor because you were in contact with it. So, you know, for everything that you had ever known for your lifetime and for throughout the whole evolution of the species of humans, you had that gravitational vector telling you down and right and left. And so I could actually feel that in my brain, this sort of flip-flop. And then if you left that spot on the ceiling, you wouldn't know exactly which way to turn because you had had this this flip-flop and thinking you're back down on the floor. But within a couple of weeks, that actually went away. And I think that the brain, some new neural pathways had formed and suddenly it was using different cues, probably locational cues, so that I knew, okay, well, that piece of equipment is over there. That means I need to go the other direction in order to get back there. And so it was really interesting to me as a physiologist to feel that, to notice that that happened. And I'd spoken to other astronauts about it as well, and they they really experienced the same kind of thing. And just seeing that remarkable plasticity of the brain and how it could change and acclimate to this entirely new setting, when it had evolved as a species, we had evolved from the beginning of time with this gravitational vector. So that, to me, was really astounding. Yeah, that is so interesting. Uh, As you say, it's more a sort of psychological readjustment. Physically, did you feel in terms of muscles or or your body sort of make the same adjustment or was that more subtle and gradual? So the one thing that you notice very distinctly when you first get to space, and that's really only after about eight minutes, you know, your rocket has launched and it's gone through all the different stages of separation. And when you are actually in space, suddenly everything is floating, right? Including your internal organs, your arms are kind of lifting up. And in that first moment, you're still strapped into your seat. So you're not just free floating in the capsule, but your arms kind of lift up and your pencil that's in front of you, of course, you have it tethered because you've anticipated that. And even every bit of dust or dirt that has settled down to the floor in gravity to the bottom of the capsule, all of that kind of lifts up in front of you. And I remember that moment very distinctly. I looked over at Haza al-Mansouri the first astronaut from the United Arab Emirates. He flew to space with me in Soyuz, and it was also his first flight. Our commander, Oleg Skripochka, he had flown before, so it was familiar for him. But when I looked over at Hazan, and we met each other's eyes, and they were as big as dinner plates, and we were just both so excited, you know, realizing that our dream, our shared dream, really had come true. And then that feeling just doesn't really go away. So you 
you know, not only like your blood has redistributed, of course, when we're sitting here, gravity is pulling blood down toward our feet. So in space, you have this redistribution of the body fluids and you can feel that in your head. So you feel as if you're hanging upside down on the monkey bars, like playing in a, in a, in a school ground or like you're a bat hanging upside down. And I think maybe as a biologist, I was picturing that suddenly I'm a bat and then that just doesn't go away. And of course your body gets acclimated to it and there are some redistributions. And so you don't feel it as strongly. You get kind of used to that feeling. Um, but it is different. You know, you feel you, even just your resting body position, you know, your shoulders are lifted up. So when we do interviews and we have a camera on us, we physically have to pull our shoulders down so we don't look kind of like hunchbacks. And <laughs> just all of these things that are, that are your resting position, your body's resting position here on Earth because of gravity that you don't ever think about, all of those things are a little bit different. So you do notice those things. During your mission, which was 205 days in mm -hmm. space, what for you was the most memorable part of it? That's really a great question. There are so many memorable parts of the mission, and I guess I would answer that a couple different ways. I think the most extraordinary thing that we do on the space station are spacewalks. And you don't necessarily get to do one. It all depends on the timing. I was pretty fortunate that I got to do three spacewalks, and I would say those are by far one of the most outstanding parts of the mission because you are outside of the spacecraft in your own suit, which is its own little mini spacecraft. It has everything that you need to live. You know, it's scrubbing the carbon dioxide. It's giving you oxygen. It's controlling temperature and pressure and protecting you from micrometeoroids. And so you really are completely self-reliant in that moment. And you are separated from the void and blackness of space only by this thin visor of your helmet. So even the view is a bit different than looking at it through the space station window. The colors are a little bit more vivid. And maybe it's just this psychological perception, too, of just being so much closer. You know, you don't have that whole volume of space around you. You're out there in the element and did you ever feel scared? Because it's very different from, say, doing your underwater training, knowing that there are people close by. I didn't actually feel scared. And I didn't know if that would be the case or not, because people have very different responses. You know, sometimes people do spacewalks and people that you wouldn't expect have a different kind of response where they are. They do feel a bit terrified. And of course, because of our years of training, they're able to complete the job and do everything they need to do, but in, really they're anxious to get back inside. I didn't have that. I was really just in awe, I think, of the view and of looking down and you see your boots dangling there and nothing else between the planet below you except for this blackness of space. And I think as well, you feel more of a sense of motion when you're outside doing a spacewalk than you do inside. Because again, you know, you have so much other volume and everything's moving together. But when you are out there on your spacewalk, just looking through your visor, it really looks like the Earth is passing by much more quickly. Of course, it's us that are, that are passing by a lot more quickly over the orbit, in the orbit over the Earth. But, you know, the, the feeling of relative motion there is really interesting. Were you aware of the excitement on Earth when you were doing the first all-female spacewalk? I mean, I watched some of it and I was on social media at the time and certainly in the UK as well as the, the US. Women in particular were just 
joyously excited and proud in terms of what you would do. It's symbolic, effectively. Yeah, absolutely. We were aware of it, but it was sort of an evolutionary process, I think, for me in thinking about it and processing all of that. Because spacewalks, although, as I mentioned, they're the most rewarding, extraordinary thing that we do, they also are the most challenging, both mentally and physically, and the riskiest thing that we do. So they really demand 100% of your focus and concentration. And add to that that my first spacewalk was only just a couple weeks after arriving on the space station. So I was kind of still in that new period of adjustment and making sure I understood how to move around in microgravity. And then I had to get ready to do the most challenging thing of the mission and the riskiest one. So I was 100% focused on that, on making sure that I understood what I needed to do and how to keep myself and Christina, my spacewalking partner, safe. So I was really, at the time, I didn't have time to process the more philosophical or historical components of it. I didn't really let myself focus on that. So I knew I needed to do the job at hand. I think after the spacewalk, I had much more time to think about that. And that's when I realized, just like you said, how many people were paying attention. And to be honest, that was quite surprising because... I don't think that most people on this planet don't know that the space station is up there, certainly don't know what's happening on a daily basis or that there's a spacewalk happening. And to be honest, spacewalks are quite boring to watch if you aren't intimately connected to what's yeah. going on. I didn't do the whole walk. I just watched bits. Yeah. Sure. And so I was really surprised by how many people around the world of all ages and of all types and of all backgrounds were paying attention and they were inspired. And I think that for whatever reason that was, whether it was something that they identified with because they too had a shared dream or a challenge or came from a background which, with which they thought you know, maybe they couldn't achieve that, it, it just brought something out in people. And so then I, I started thinking about that more and, and really took it on as a big responsibility of understanding that we, we were that source of inspiration that day. And so it's really our responsibility to pay that forward and to keep sharing that and keep that message going. But I think the most important thing for me that I had thought a lot about was, you know, we were at a time on the space station when it was just the two of us going out the hatch that day to do our jobs. Could have been a man and a woman or two men or two women. We were all equally trained. But finally, we have gotten to a point where there were two women that were both qualified. And so that was what happened that day. For us, it just felt like us doing our job. But what I realized is, you know, this is not about our personal achievement. It was just a, do, us doing what we were trained to do. But it was because of these generations of women and other minorities that came before us at a time when we definitely didn't have that equal seat at the table. And they were really the ones that were pushing those boundaries and breaking those glass ceilings to enable us to feel like it was just us doing our job that day. So really, the moment is for them. It's not for me. I look at it as this time for them to revel in what they achieved at a time when you know, we didn't have that equity. And that's something that we've celebrated a little bit here during my time at Oxford and here in London where the Physiological Society has unveiled these plaques to commemorate some of these women that were those boundary pushers. And at the time, were absolutely not getting due what they deserved and what their credit was. And so that has been a really nice thing for me. It's meant a lot for me to be involved with that and to continue to sort of pay that forward and thank these people that came before us for pushing us as far as they have. Oh, that's great. And that's lovely to hear because... You probably don't remember, but I interviewed you once in 
2016 with Wally Funk for a BBC radio programme that I was doing about the history of women in space. And we had you on as potentially one of the people, uh, first women who could walk on the moon. And we'll get to Artemis in, in, in a second. At the time, you'd not heard of the Mercury 13. How did you feel when Wally Funk finally went into space with Jeff Bezos? Because I expect you will have heard from her by then. Yes, well, I do remember that very distinctly. And oh, she's unforgettable. <laughs> thank you for reminding me. I, I did know about the Mercury 13. I had never met any of them before. And I guess maybe I didn't know all the details of their story, which, which of course, after meeting Wally, more of that came up. They are such a group of extraordinary women who, you know, went through all the same training as the men did. And unfortunately, their program was canceled. And when the men's was not. But I'm so happy that you brought that up. Actually, after that event, I'm not sure if you remember, but Wally gave me one of her postcards. It was a picture of her and it was signed. And so that meant a lot to me. And so I kept that the entire time and I brought it with me to the space station. (gasps) I never knew that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. So I had that with me. You know, we have a small number of personal effects of things that we can bring. And I took a picture of her card floating in the cupola in our big observatory of windows looking down at the planet. So when I got home, I, you know, she didn't know that I did that. When I got home, I contacted her her sort of agent representative and uh, let her know that I did that. And I sent her a picture of the card and I just wanted her to show Wally so that Wally could know that although she hadn't been to space yet, she was certainly there you know, with me in spirit and that I was hoping to kind of share my mission with her and share that view down to the earth with her. So all of that was happening, actually, I didn't know anything about her flight. And it was just a few weeks before her flight that I happened to email them. And she said, well, you know, Wally's pretty busy right now with all of these interviews. She really wants to talk to you. And so in the end, I ended up speaking to her after her flight. And since she was a bit inundated with everything Mm. that was going on, but it was really nice to have that connection and to compare our views. And I'm so happy that she was able to, to do that, you know, for her, for everything that she and all of those, those other women in the Mercury 13, all that work that they had put in without that reward. So that was really a, a very meaningful moment for me. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I will talk to her about this next time I speak to her on the phone, because that's just such a wonderful story. We've mentioned Artemis. In that program I did for World Service Radio, we reckoned you were one of those women that would definitely be in with a shot. You have been selected for the Artemis program. It's going slightly behind schedule, which, to be honest, to most people isn't necessarily a surprise, and it might be a year or so after. But how do you feel about that? Potentially, you could be not just going back to the space station, which is still a possibility, but actually going either into orbit around the moon or potentially landing and uh, walking on the surface. Yeah, I think that the most special part of it all is just to think that we are here now, we are planning these missions, and that even if it isn't me, of course I would love it to be me to make (laughs) those first steps back on the moon, but the fact is that I know this person, you know, they're one of my colleagues, and that is so exciting just to know that I'll be playing some kind of role in the mission, whether it's from the ground or from a support team or on the missions myself. And it's really an exciting time for us as astronauts because, as you mentioned, we have all these different ways to go to space now. 
My second flight could be on another Soyuz vehicle with the Russians like my first one was to the space station. It could be on a SpaceX Dragon. Hopefully we'll have the Boeing Starliner in action soon, bringing astronauts to the space station. And then we have the space launch system and the Orion capsule being built now. And that is the, the spacecraft, of course, that will take us back to the moon and eventually onto Mars. And I can tell you, last spring, I was at the Kennedy Space Center. I was there helping to coordinate things for one of the SpaceX Dragon launches. And we went to the Vehicle Assembly Building, the really large building where they are stacking the Space Launch System and the rockets. And re very recently, the Orion capsule has been stacked on top of that, too. And seeing that with my own eyes, I think, has made it much more real. You know, the rocket is there. It is almost ready to go. And hopefully we will be launching that in February of next year or soon afterward. That will be the Artemis 1, the first mission, and it's just a test flight of the capsule and the rocket without a crew. But then the nice thing is that'll be about the time when we start assigning the crews for the next mission, which will have a crew on it. And that should be about two years after that. So you're right, it is a little bit later than the originally proposed schedule, but I think that we all knew that that was probably not the most realistic. And the nice thing is we are making progress. We're moving forward. And that launch, that first launch should be very soon. So I'm so excited to be a part of that effort and a part of that team. And, you know, for me, the Artemis effort really means three things. It shows, again, how significant our steps are in exploration. That really is just a, a part of the human ethos and spirit, I believe. It shows what we will do and undertake in terms of science. You know, to this day, we're still learning new things from the Apollo samples with new technologies and new ways of looking at those same samples. So I know that that will be true for Artemis as well. And we'll be going to different sites than the Apollo missions did. For example, the South Pole, where there's a lot of frozen water, which we could we would help us unravel a lot more scientific questions about the formation of the moon and really the whole solar system. And we could also use some of those resources for further exploration. And I think lastly, the part that I think about a lot, again, in terms of those Apollo missions, are all of the other benefits that came from that investment in this big program to go back to go to the moon. You know, with the Apollo mission, we saw this huge burgeoning and investment in resources for all the STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, math, and that has paid dividends for decades now in so many fields well outside of the space sector. So we know that when we invest in something so great like that, like returning to the moon, we will have benefits and advances in all of these other areas as well. So it really will pay off for all of that investment. Finally, I thought it was very honest of you to um, say that, you know, when you returned back to Earth, you returned to a pandemic and that you did admit, I've seen articles where you say at times, you know, I was a bit depressed, which let's face it, all of us, or most of us have been depressed at some stage. Um, on the podcast, we've often joked that, you know, the people, it made us sort of reappraise what it was like to be on the space station and somebody like myself who'd always wanted to do it made me think actually maybe I'm not that suited for it after all <laughs> sort of psychologically have you now fully uh, adjusted to this new world that we're in and did any experiences on that space station prepare you for this earth 2.0 we're in now yeah I think that was a really interesting component about our mission that made it quite unique you know, it's always a challenge to come back to Earth after seven months being away in space. 
but it was particularly challenging for us given that we launched, there was no COVID, and we saw it all unravel from the vantage point of the space station, which was quite surreal and, and quite strange. And coming back, you know, we really did return to a completely different planet. So it took a lot of adjusting to, you know, I would have stayed in space for at least a year or longer. I wasn't ready to come home regardless, (laughs) but particularly to this planet, the few things that I had started thinking about, you know, my friends, my family, going to some of my favorite restaurants, I couldn't do any of those things or see any of those people. So actually, I think the isolation and confinement that I experienced back on Earth because of COVID were much more difficult than the isolation and confinement in space. You know, that's just something that you expect from a mission. There's a very good reason for it, and that's the vacuum of space outside. But here on Earth, our society is really not built that way. So I found it to be much more challenging, but certainly some of the coping mechanisms are still the same. You know, we train those things as astronauts, so maybe we are a little bit more equipped to deal with that. And, you know, in terms of communication and teamwork and keeping a regular schedule, all of those things I think really helped during the pandemic and they're what we do in space as well, you know, making sure to exercise and and all of these different components, stay in touch with others and have the same kind of video conferences on Earth now that we were having from sp- from space as well. So I think I've certainly readjusted. Unfortunately, it almost feels like my mission was a dream now. It's, it's difficult to believe that it was real, but it's nice now that I'm finally getting the opportunity to travel a little bit and talk to people and do some of these talks and, and give back and really share this mission that I was so fortunate to have experienced. NASA astronaut Jessica Meir. And I was so... So Meir as in Meerkat as Meir opposed as in Meerkat. to Meerkat. Although I, I must admit, I always thought it was Meyer, but... Uh, well, she should know. She should she? know. <laughs> she did She did introduce herself to me at the beginning and said Meir. And I was delighted to hear that she'd taken that photo of Wally into space because, I mean, if you've read the Wally Funk's Race for Space book, you'll know that Wally and I actually left Jessica a little deflated um, purely because we thought, oh, she doesn't know anything about the Mercury 13 and Wally was a bit let down. So it's amazing. My thoughts about Jessica have totally changed and you realise that one meeting, in this case, Wally with Jessica had a big effect and made her learn about women and space and the fact that she's doing so much for women and minorities now she was kind enough to take up that photo for Wally and then you know tell her about it so yeah talk about overturning my I'd hate to say judgment but that's sort of what it was I think also when you first interviewed Jessica so this is quite a few years yeah, ago now yeah she hadn't flown in space yet had she and, no. and NASA and... astronauts are so careful that's true. they don't want to step out of line or say anything that might prejudice yeah, that's true I mean I remember being very impressed by her I do remember that she she spoke incredibly fast and, and Wally couldn't quite keep up and I found it very difficult. And obviously, you the more interviews you do and you learn. And yeah, you're right. You also realise in hindsight that she must have been quite anxious, although they never admit to being anxious. But they don't I admit you, any feelings. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I reckon you would because as you say, you, you're there, you train and then you're waiting for years and years and years. And she waited three years particularly at that point because space. the only way to get into space at that point when you interviewed her in 2016 was on the Soyuz yeah see now there are more options there are now more opportunities again yeah. like there were with the shuttle but there weren't the opportunities then so I would say 
that as well. No, she seemed so much more relaxed than when we first met her. Obviously, because she's sort of somebody who's dreamed of being an astronaut since she's five. Now she's been there, done that. And um, I couldn't think of a more worthy person to become the first woman on the moon now, apart from Samantha Cristoforetti, of course. Now, as you may have observed over the last few months, we're kindly sponsored by the UK Space Agency, which helps us cover what we always intended to cover in this podcast, which few other podcasts do, which is UK Space Stories. And the agency just appointed its new CEO, Paul Bate. He's a physicist. He worked on Hubble and his recent background is in healthcare. Now, I've been speaking to Paul and I hope you agree that even though we take their money. Not that much money. Not that much money. No, I I didn't let him off too easily when it came to the questions. And we began with a job interview question. What's his vision for the UK in space? There's never been a better time to be in space than now. And that's absolutely true for the UK. We've got so much going on from the basic science exploring the universe to the climate change agenda. Over half of the uh, the key essential climate variables can only be managed for, uh, and measured from space. We can't look through the uh, the cloud the the canopy of the of the forests to see what's really happening on deforestation without space is just one example. So with so much happening and the the space sector growing so quickly, sixty percent increase uh, over the last ten years. My vision is to support the, the the UK's overall drive to be a space faring nation. The agency has a huge role in that, whether it's about supporting the industry, uh, academics and the commercial sector uh, to get as um, as many contracts and to grow as fast as possible in these burgeoning space markets, or it's delivering the, these programs of real national need, as we're already starting to do with, uh, for example, launch from the UK starting next year with, uh, with small satellites. Uh, there's so much to do and so much inspiration that can be derived from space is so unique. Uh, it's bringing those things together uh, in the, the priorities for the agency, which I think is the core of my job. Well, let's let's unpick some of that. I mean, let's go back to this this growth idea first of all. There was this plan, much publicised plan, uh, over the last few years to capture ten percent of the global space market by twenty thirty. Is is that out of the window? Is that is that unrealistic? Well, as the National Space Strategy sort of sets out, there's there's more than one key way to measure your success in space. With just having that metric, of course, you're at the whim of how big the overall sector gets uh, and there's taking a percentage of that. So the key thing really is to work what as we decide through the strategy and the implementation of it, what matters most, what things should we be prioritising? Those are the things that we really need to measure. And those are conversations that are being had with academics, with uh, with industry and across government. I suppose there's a fundamental question here about the role of, of space agencies now. I mean, do do we need them? I mean, there's not, a, for example, there's not a car agency or a, or a plane agency. I mean, the role has changed, hasn't it? Well, I think we do need space agencies. And what everybody tells me is I've been travelling up and down the length and breadth of the country is that they want a space agency. And also, you know, when I'm talking with international colleagues, there's a real desire for the agencies in, in each country to continue. More agencies are actually growing, uh, coming up each year. But the point of having an agency is it brings together the technical expertise to really know what's happening today in space 
and the sector and also what well, what are those nascent technologies what's going to be amazing in 5 10 15 years time bring it together particularly in in our case the UK space agency for the civil space agenda we have our, our partners on the defense side in UK space command but that ability to bring the expertise into one place and act on behalf of the whole sector whilst being part of government that's pretty unique and that's a good mandate to have uh, and what does that mean in, in practical terms? I'm giving some examples of how that actually equates to advances in space and space technology. Take in-orbit service and manufacturing. This is a, a subsector of space that's, that's really uh, getting a lot of attention, that's named in the National Space Strategy as something where they, the UK wants to take a, a leading position. The idea that you once a satellite is, is up, it doesn't just sit there till the end of its of its life um, doing the job it was initially charged to do, but that you can, we can service it, you can extend its life, potentially change its uses. And equally, of course, built, some things can only be feasibly built in space. If you need a microgravity environment or an incredibly high quality vacuum, that's exactly what space does well. So you look at companies like Spaceforge in Wales that are really you know, on the cutting edge of in-orbit manufacture. It's those sorts of nascent technologies where you can't necessarily expect them just to emerge fully formed. Having an an agency that has um, the ability to to channel funding in the right directions as well as make the connections is often the the difference between um, a company or academics having a good idea but that doesn't quite make it to helping them on all the sort of steps of the journey so that we have these really burgeoning technologies these these industries of the future that are uh, at the moment feel quite early stage but in 10 15 years we'll be asking ourselves how do we ever live without them just like we felt you know, through so many things from our smartphones to uh, to google maps let's pick up on that so jeff bezos has talked recently about this idea of almost these industrial estates in space or manufacturing facilities in space is that then a realistic prospect is that something we should be be looking towards well the great advantage of having people like jeff bezos and elon musk on the planet is they will think big in the in the truest sense of the word yes it's possible and like all of these things it won't happen in one big leap but it's only if we ask these questions and we going back to the role of the agency understand where current technologies are and what could be most useful to the future and invest or co-invest with those companies and with those academics that we're ever going to get to the stage where those those things suddenly seem commonplace look where we were 15 20 years ago you know half of those things that you know we could hardly dream of them and now we've got smartphones aplenty more phones than there are toothbrushes on the planet in 2020 the uk controversially at the time invested in in one web which was in financial trouble. How does OneWeb, this network of communication satellites around the planet, how does that fit into to those plans? Well, let me say a couple of things about OneWeb. So the, the, the vast majority of, uh, of, of OneWeb employees, and I think there are now around 300, work in the UK. So it's a great success story. Um, it was obviously in a difficult position a year or so ago, but now it's got phenomenal investment from a range of stakeholders, in, including the UK government. It's already putting up hundreds of satellites. I think it has around 350 flying already. By the end of this year, it'll have coverage 
uh, for satellite communications from everywhere. So I think 50 degrees north of the equator, so in covering the UK and by 2022, it'll have global coverage. There are something like a billion people across the planet who don't currently have internet connectivity. It's not credible to believe that they're going to get there in the rural communities that they live in from terrestrial means. But satellites flying overhead, and particularly low Earth orbit constellation satellites, are absolutely the answer to that connectivity and the improved life chances that come with having good satellite communications. And is that something only government can do? I'm thinking of the government's investment in, in, in OneWeb, of, of public money into, into OneWeb. That investment took place before I joined the space agency. But I look at it to go in, in 12 months or there thereabouts from the, the challenging position they were in financially to being this burgeoning you know, player on the world stage, one of the, the biggest constellation satellite operators. Yes, I think it does sometimes take governments to, to step in. I think what this government showed is that it's willing to do so when the when the case is right. And clearly it won't won't always be the case at all that a government needs to take an equity stake. But in the case of OneWeb, now we can we can really see the the value of um of that com- uh, company for the world, but being based in the UK. Now, I, I mean, I'm amazed. I've been around the UK space sector for well it's getting on for 20 20 years now it's shocking uh, i guess how much it is has changed and the thought even 10 years ago of launching from the uk it, it was the stuff of science fiction but now i mean that's a realistic well it is going to happen in the next probably two years i mean why is that important why does it matter launching rockets into orbit from the uk Yeah. Well, so first and foremost, we have a really mature space sector. But one thing that we haven't had the capability to do is to actually launch the satellites ourselves. So we're able to design these satellites, to do the manufacture, to exploit the data that comes back down. But until now, we didn't have that end-to-end service from UK Sol. And that's what's changing. So whether it's up at the Saxavord spaceport on the Shetland Islands, or whether it's Sutherland at the top of um, uh, the mainland in, in Scotland, or it's uh, in Cornwall with horizontal launch in partnership with Virgin Orbit, these different spaceports, each of which um, is being funded by, by UK government and, and through grants from UKSA in one way or another, is, is just changing the game. It's when we know so many satellites... Uh, it makes sense to launch them into these so-called polar orbits and sometimes sun-synchronous orbits. So they go overhead at the same time each day so they cast the same shadow or see the same shadow. These are really important science and Earth observation satellites. So it's always been a you know a great sort of ability of the, of the country system from its geography to be able to launch satellites into these polar orbits. There's obviously a lot of water to our north. But now we've, you know, we've invested as a country uh, and through these different spaceports and, and others besides, uh, Prestwick, for example, to, to make this a reality. And like you were saying, certainly within the next two years, we're, obviously, we're, we're pushing for launch next year. Now, the big science mission coming up is the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm. Uh, you're, you're a physicist. You must be excited about this mission because, frankly, it's been a long time coming. It seems extraordinary. We've been talking about it for, well... 10 years probably at least 10 years Uh, and then finally uh, and finally you know we're talking days now we're going to get a launch yeah you're absolutely right 18th of december is the target launch date and 
Yeah, my very, very first piece of research going back more than 25 years, I think now, was on uh, Hubble and the faint object camera. So having a huge space telescope, the next generation space telescope in Webb, it's a really special moment of the entire space community. Uh, but particularly uh, in the UK community, there are four main instruments on Webb. One is MIRI, the Mid-Infrared Interferometer. And that is led out of the UK, out of Edinburgh with the principal investigators uh, based there. It's just fantastic. No other country has as many science proposals in for, for use of web data than the UK does, over 100 of them. Everyone's going to be waiting with bated breath as the, uh, as the rocket goes up. You know, my tribute to the thousands of scientists, engineers, other professionals who have got us to this, this stage. Part of the amazement of space is that we are able to do these incredible things, whether it's launching, frankly, beautiful gold-plated beryllium telescopes, or it's you know, the, the exploration that we've already done at the moon and, uh, and, and robotically on Mars. Uh, this, this is part of the wonder that's, uh, that makes space so unique. But most importantly of all, the value that we get from bringing the data back down to Earth and understanding more about our planet, our solar system, our galaxy and our universe. Will the UK continue to support the, the human spaceflight element of, of the European Space Agency, the, you know, actually funding to put astronauts in, in space? All funding decisions are based on the comprehensive spending review that's, uh, that's winding its way through now that we have the, um, the overall settlement. There's uh, all the discussions that are, are always played out after a spending review. But you know, quite clearly, you know, we... Uh, we have Tim Peake as a European Space Agency astronaut uh, based in the UK, paid for through the UK. Um, we're incredibly proud. Tim's already been up once to the space station for six months. His next flight is to be determined. Uh, and obviously, you, you can imagine just how complex these things are. But again, it's part of space. It's part of exploring. So you know, I think everyone will be very excited by, um, uh, by the thoughts of what happens next with the astronaut programme. Um, would you like to see Tim Peake fly again? I'd love to see UK astronauts fly. Tim is phenomenally well qualified. He's part of that ESA cohort. Uh, I, I have a personal love and passion to, of, of seeing human exploration. But it all depends on money at the end of the day. <laughs> well, everything ultimately depends on money and using the taxpayers' money well. But we've always uh, always expected that Tim would be able to go up again. That's the conversations that we're having. Are you excited then about the next few years in space and taking over as the head of the space agency at this this time? Yeah, it's an easily um, yeah, overused word, but this is my dream job. I've spent the last two months literally going from, from place to place across the UK and every single site visit that I'm on, I'm just amazed and in awe of what we are already achieving, leading the, the CubeSat revolution getting ready for, for vertical and horizontal launch from UK soil. You have incredible uh, uses of the, of the data, leading the science missions that are changing the face of, um, of climate change, whether it's truths or biocarb or biomass, microcarb or biomass. It's something I can't ever see myself getting bored of. But I also, I have 300 or so great colleagues across the space agency who are deeply professional alongside colleagues throughout government. And that's in addition to... Uh, everybody working in the space set to the 45,000 or so people uh, that are currently across the uh, commercial world and, uh, and academics. What, what, what an opportunity, what a responsibility. I'm, I'm over the moon. 
the UK Space Agency's new head of CEO, Paul Bate. And I must admit, I enjoyed that. I don't want to sound surprised that it's you. <laughs> because often, my interviews are really, usually really tedious. But often when it's the CEO of something, you know, you do the... <clears throat> no, I but do he's anyway. so enthusiastic. But yeah, I, I, was, I, I thought, wow, here's somebody who really no, does and I also enjoy think his job. Going around the UK and seeing what the UK is doing in space, seeing satellites being mm. built, seeing the launch sites, all this stuff, I think that's brilliant. Absolutely mm. brilliant brilliant thing to do yeah no so uh yeah i'm quite enthused about that yeah um, then so, you had that and i'm uh, looking forward to meeting him myself that's it for this month's podcast join us for it says here a fun pack. <laughs> who wrote this uh, no, join I, us I'm for very, a I fun need... packed end of the year edition next month okay it's lazy what's journalism it? but i what I is in next month? What's in next month? I, I, is I, it fun pack? Is it really fun pack? Uh, the reason I put fun pack is I'm not 100% sure <laughs> who's going to be in it. I do know it's John Chinner and um, he's great. He's a, a space engineer and he's fabulous with Lego. And I thought, come on, if you can't use fun packed for that, I don't know what you can. And I also have a couple of other people in mind who are equally fun packed, but I haven't actually contacted them yet. It's sort of in my mind. You know, when so you think, in your mind, it's, it's in fun my packed. mind. It's, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm, I've contacted them telepathically. Yeah. Okay. So you be the I'll judge of that. Them. You be the judge <laughs> of that next month. <laughs> Thanks for listening.